The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Vikings were much more globally connected than you might expect. Dr Kat Jarman's new book, River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Road, opens up the story of Scandinavian trade, settlement and communication from the Baltic Sea right through to Asia. History Extra content director David Musgrove spoke to Kat to find out more. So here in Britain, when we think of Vikings, we tend to think of them as the raiders from the north who came here, robbed our monasteries, took our riches. And that's a a narrative that goes from Lindisfarne 793 and the raid on the monastery there through to maybe 1016 and King Knut or 1066, the Norman conquest, if you take the view the Normans were Norsemen originally. And we have um, you know various periods of raiding and settlement by people who we think of as Scandinavians in that time, Danes and Norwegians principally, uh, in, in modern terms of nationality. But I think nowadays we're we're also coming to terms with, or it's coming into clearer public consciousness, uh, that Viking activity was also going on in an easterly direction from the Scandinavian homelands. Anyone who's watched the Vikings on TV or read any number of historical novels on the topic will know that Viking warriors travelled through Eastern Europe and got up to adventures there. But those tend to be seen as two sort of separate, unconnected things. And uh, and your book, Cat, sort of brings those together for me. When I was reading it, it you, you brought those those two spheres of interest together. So uh, we can see that both the Western and Eastern sides of the Viking experience is connected, part of a wider trade and communication system. And, and much more complicated than just a few thrill-seeking war bands heading out for loot and plunder, which is kind of, you know, you, you can see it in that in that sense when you when you look at some of the historical fiction. So, um, so I'd like to focus on the Eastern side of the story for this conversation, if that's okay, because I think that is the bit that it's uh, kind of undertold for us in Britain. So first thing we need to do, after that uh, slightly extensive prologue, is just um, establish what we mean by the, the term Viking. So I've used that a few times there. We, Whenever we interview that we do about the Viking period and the Vikings in general, I think we need to clarify what we mean by that word and why it's problematic. So what, what's, what's your take on the word and how we should use it? 
Yes, that is a good place to start, but it is also usually one of the hardest places. It sounds easy, but it's it is not. And the way we use it, and certainly the way I use uh, the word, is to describe these people and, and cultural traits that emerge in and travel out from Scandinavia in the period we call the Viking Age, which, as as you've talked about already, um, often starts around about 750, maybe going on to about 1050, depending a bit where you are and, and what you're looking at. But the challenge is really defining then who were the Vikings apart from that, and, and especially when they move out. And as we'll see in a moment where we talk about uh, the eastern side, when do you stop becoming a Viking or, you know, when do you start? And uh, I think the important thing to understand is that this wasn't really a word that uh, those people used about themselves. You couldn't rock up to somebody in the year 900 and say, are oh, you a Viking? It wouldn't really make much sense to them. The word has several roots and uh, the meaning that we, we think, uh, the sort of roots that they come from, it, it can refer to a person, but it can also refer to the activity, the, the sort of movement out, especially uh, the raids and being involved in military activities. But really, what's really important is that Viking is not an ethnicity. It's not something that you were born or, or anything like that. It's very much a cultural label. And it is one that makes sense to us because there is something overarching. There's, there's a sort of spread of these people, these ideas that it relates to language um, and all sorts of cultural traits uh, going out, originating in Scandinavia. And that's, I guess, the key point. But the problem is when you move out, where does the sort of Viking stop and something else begin as we'll, we'll We'll see you in a moment. Absolutely. Okay, so we're using the term Viking sort of advisedly and in that context, yeah. and, and hopefully hopefully our listeners uh, get the gist of it. So um, so your book, which is which is brilliant, an absolutely fascinating read, um, uh, it basically tells the story of how a piece of carnelian bead, and, and perhaps we'll have to explain what that is, um, likely originating from somewhere in India, in Gujarat, ended up in a mass grave at the Viking Great Army camp uh, from the 860s, 870s in Repton, Derbyshire. Now, listeners to this podcast are probably aware that the Viking Great Army was a force that came across the North Sea from Scandinavia, invaded England uh, in 865 with pretty considerable success. It's the story that uh, King Alfred the Great gets involved with. Um, but if we were to look east from Scandinavia instead of west to Britain, what do we see there at that time? Were, were Viking ships sailing through the Baltic just as much as, as the North Sea? Absolutely. So by the time we get to the 870s, so when the Great Army is in Repton and when this, this bead that I'm writing about uh, uh, ends up there, we've had an awful lot of activity going across the Baltic, going in those easterly uh, directions for quite a while. And in fact, people have been traveling around Scandinavia, obviously, for, for hundreds of years before that as well. But we know that a lot of this starts around the 700s, really. A lot of trade begins. And so we have movement of goods. Um, in some ways, I think that's sort of where it starts. Movements of goods going from inland Scandinavia all the way down to Denmark and then starting across the Baltic as well. And we start to see a lot of trading settlements popping up. We know this because we see artefacts uh, on both sides of the Baltic and seeing them in different places. We have things like uh, antler that must have come from reindeer from inland Scandinavia, inland Norway and Sweden, turning up in places like Riba in, in Denmark, one of these trading settlements. And as I said, from about the 750s, these settlements start to spread east as well. So we know there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of contact going across the Baltic. By the time we get to the 870s, this is really, really well established. And so, so I mentioned that carnelian uh, to start with, actually, which is, what's carnelian? Presumably that's not something that's available in Scandinavia. No, so carnelian is a semi-precious stone that's um, used, even today you can get jewellery made of uh, carnelian. And 
there's there are no sources in Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, but it was extremely popular, especially from about the 860s, 870s uh, in uh, Scandinavia and across the Viking world. And this material, this stone, is imported from the East. Sources are, as you said, either uh, India or possibly around the Caspian Sea areas. And all of a sudden, they seem to appear in vast quantities uh, coming in and they become the fashionable thing. And so this one particular bead was found in the mass grave, the mass burial in Repton. It's one of only about three or four uh, found from the Viking Age uh, in England at all. So they're, they're really quite unusual. And so what I'm doing in the book is sort of trying to understand the networks that this was part of and how it got there in the first place. So let's let's just uh, try and understand uh, what was going on in the Baltic a bit more. So um, so you're talking about trade routes which must be going or, or routes some some sort of routes which must be going over to the east. So um, let's try and understand what's going on in the Baltic a bit. And there's various places you talk about in your book which are interesting and might be worth mentioning. So uh, a few places, a few names. I'm just going to drop: Berka, Salme, and uh, Staraya Ladoga, which I may have mispronounced there. So. Can you just sort of uh, explain uh, explain a bit about those places for us? Yeah. So if we start with Birka, that's one of the big trading settlements in Sweden. It's near Stockholm uh, on a lake. And that really became one of the major trading towns in Sweden at the time. I think it emerges around 800 or, or, or just before possibly. And quite quickly, these settlements become pretty much as urban as you get in Scandinavia at the time, because you don't really have cities, you don't have towns. So it's the trading settlements that that really kick off this sort of urban um, uh, sort of structure, really. And so that's one of them in Sweden. And Moving across, the site you mentioned was Salma in Estonia. Now, Salma is a really, really fascinating site and, and it possibly one of the keys to understand what happens across the Baltic in this early period. And what's so special about it is that it's the site of these two really incredible burials, ship burials, that were found just over 10 years ago now. And uh, so you have two ships on this island quite near the sea. They were pulled up uh, and buried in the sand but inside them were the remains of uh, almost 40 individuals. So I think the largest boats had 34 men who were buried inside the ship, all together stacked up on top of each other. And all the analysis, all the artefacts and all the objects show us that these clearly came from Scandinavia. Isotope analysis has showed the same. Genetic results are also similar suggestion that these may well have come from Sweden. In fact, possibly somewhere nearby Birka. And... It's clear that these were uh, subjected to some kind of raid. They have violent injuries. There are weapons and sort of arrowheads still lodged in the side of the boat. But they were buried with great care. But what's so special is that the date of this boat, uh, the ship burial, is actually quite early. It uh, dates to around 750, so right at the start of the Viking Age and before Lindisfarne kicks off. So not only do we have this trade, but we also have raids going across and... That's uh, that's a kind of new information because this is a very new discovery and we didn't really know about it before. But it might be one of those keys to to understanding what's going on. And what about Staraya? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot you mentioned that one as well. Um, so apart from that site then, uh, if we start to look at the trading sites, the first one that we, we reach really if we continue in that direction is the site called Staraya Ladoga, which uh, is what is now Russia near St. Petersburg. And it's a very strategic location because you can get through it if you sort of sail the furthest east you can in the Baltic Sea and go through these river routes. And it's strategic also because 
It's where you can get into those eastern rivers. So it's where you go to the Volga and the Dnieper, which are these the biggest rivers that will take you down to the Caspian Sea and down to the Black Sea. And this settlement starts also around about 750, probably. There's traces of a Scandinavian settlement from that point. And uh, we know that because there are artifacts of a sort of typical Scandinavian type. And um, it certainly seems like a place where you have a lot of trade going on. So uh, movement will be going across from places like uh, Birka, from either further west as well, and, um, and then continuing eventually onwards to the east. Okay, so you've just painted a picture there um, very succinctly of of movement in an easterly direction from from Sweden, maybe from eastern Denmark, across the Baltic, um, probably a little bit before the the more westerly journeys from from Norway and Denmark over over to the to Britain. Um, so, and and you and you mentioned there that that these places uh, inevitably in in the end link into the rivers into the river system, and that's the key thing, isn't it? Because that takes us back uh, uh, in the end to the carnelian bead and, and right across to uh, to to Asia and all sorts of interesting places. So, so at what point do we think uh, we can see river journeys um, happening um, in this period? When when can we get a sense that the uh, the Vikings, the Viking, the Viking travelers are moving into the river system? It certainly seems like from the 750s, these journeys start. And because we have the settlement, which is on a river, they are clearly moving and exploring uh, the rivers by that point. And it's not long after until they start to spread uh, further down along the coast. And, but what is possible is that we might have some more temporary uh, journeys. Certainly, we know there's a lot of trade going on, objects going up uh, and down the rivers. But it seems to be around about the 750s that something happens and towards the end of the 8th century. And that's when we start to get settlement as well. So we know that this intensifies and we know that this is the only way really that it makes sense to travel. These these river journeys take us into uh, into an area which is now which which would now be known as Russia, as you said. Um, and uh, in this period, we start to hear of these people called the Rus. Where do they fit into the story? Are they the same as the Vikings? Are they separate? What's the, I know there's a debate about that about uh, about that conversation. So just drop us into that. I know it's a complicated and uh, and, and an academic thing and, and obviously um, quite controversial and political. So so what's what's the story there? Yes, that's the, the really big question, actually, is who were the Rus and how are they related to the Vikings? Are they Scandinavians? Are they Vikings? Or are they absolutely not? And uh, I think we are starting to get to a bit more of an agreement now, but it's been a very difficult and con- contentious issue. The first time we hear of them at all is in one of the Frankish annals uh, in an entry from the year 839, when all of a sudden at the court of um, Louis the Pious, as this group is arriving from Constantinople, and with them, they have this group that call themselves the Rus, and Louis hadn't heard of them before. Nobody really had. And um, he wasn't quite clear at all what they were doing there. So he interrogated them, and eventually they uh, they, just, they said that they belonged to the Swedes, so pretty much who we would call the Vikings. And then later on in what's known as the Russian Primary Chronicle, which uh, essentially gives a sort of origin story for the Russian state, we again hear about the Rus and we hear about them in the 860s, where the Rus come in, they're actually essentially called in uh, to help because 
the country of the Slavs, which is essentially what, what later becomes Russia, uh, was in so much turmoil and they were being attacked from the north. Uh, they kept fighting amongst themselves. And so the Rus were called in to essentially help them and to rule over them. And so somebody called Rurik and his brothers answered this call and um, essentially established what became the Russian state or, or Russia. So this story is written down in the uh, probably about the 12th century. And we don't really think it's entirely accurate. We don't know how much of it is real and how much of it is just made up as an origin story. So those are the two, two sort of important stories that we have to relate to about the Rus. But we also hear about them in lots of other different stories. We hear about them in uh, Arabic accounts and various other Greek um, documents, documents from um, Byzantium especially. But none of them really explain whether they are definitely Vikings or whether they're definitely Scandinavians. So that's that's where it becomes really, really difficult. So can we should we be talking about this part of Russia being part of the Scandinavian world or not? It's certainly part of the world. It's part of the same sphere. But I think it's wrong to say that these people are Vikings in the same sense that we think of the people who live in Scandinavia or those who come over to settle in England, for example. But they are living in the same sort of world phenomenon, if you like. And there are certainly a lot of... uh, Vikings or the people from Scandinavia who who move through this world and the people who settle and it's a part of their world very much but whether they're really the same people we don't know I think the understanding now is that we have an awful lot of mixing going on so we have some people settling um, and within you know a couple of generations we have mixed essentially Slav Scandinavian populations um, but we still we still don't know we still haven't quite uh, been able to to work out. So it is still a bit contentious, and uh, it's something that we're trying to work towards understanding. Right, so the title of your book is is River King. So clearly we're talking quite a lot about river journeys. So I just want to take us back to uh, to that bit again, because I found this absolutely fascinating. So um, let's let's say you're a, you're a, a Viking party, you're in Sweden, and then you um, decide you need to trek across the Baltic, and uh, you go in a, in a seagoing sailing boat. You need to be in a boat that's going to survive the rigours of, of the Baltic Sea. You get to uh, to, a, to to some sort of um, estuary on a river system. What do you do then? Do you do you have to change your boat, um, or would those boats have been suitable for travelling along these rivers, which are presumably quite large rivers, the ones that go into uh, in, into inland um, continental Europe? Yeah, some of them are very large and they're very very wide as well. And part of the beauty of the Viking ship is that it's very very versatile. It's got these very shallow hulls, and so they are very well is suitable to going across open seas, but also inland rivers. And we see that in England, certainly we know that they go uh, very far inland in places uh, places like that and in Scandinavia as well. But um, and some of those rivers, certainly you would be able to take a, a relatively sizable ship. And there are some saga uh, stories from a bit later on suggesting that people travelled all the way from, essentially from Scandinavia and down to, to Constantinople in, in one go. But I think in, re- in reality, that's not going to be possible. There are so many uh, difficult parts. There are places you have to go overland. There isn't one complete stretch of river all the way down from the Baltic. Um, so we have lots of portages where you have to uh, somehow get get across. There are also some really quite dangerous rapids, which are not suitable for large boats. So it's going to be a situation, I think, where Boats are being swapped over, so you might have to take your your large boat and and, and essentially park it for a while uh, somewhere, and then changing to smaller vessels or different forms of transport. 
And there was there's a place you mentioned in your book called uh, um, where which you mooted as possibly a place where you would go and and sort of deposit your boat, park it uh, for your for your journey down down river. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of them. So that's quite far down. So um, or perhaps you're coming up if you're coming up from the Black Sea. Perhaps that might be be a place. Some of these are also places where you might swap to overland transport because even though most of the transport would have been on the river, people would also obviously have moved by horseback um, and uh, any other other ways and forms of traveling. But uh, it seems like a lot of these settlements and a lot of these towns are there for that reason as well. And we also know of places like Shestovica that they're repairing ships, they're fixing them. So any trouble that you've sort of got yourself into on the way, um, places like that, you can have uh, new, new bits of your boats fitted. So we we know that by finding things like ship nails, which is exactly the same sort of thing we find in, in England at Viking camps as well. So you have that, that sort of consistency in East and West. That's fascinating, isn't it? And and you mentioned rapids then, and uh, you've got a really good bit um, in your book where you, you talk about um, how uh, some of these rapids are actually described in a sort of, I'm, I'm not sure what it is, is it a root book which is recorded by by the one of the uh, Byzantine emperors, um, sort of explaining the, uh, the, the the travails that the Vikings had to uh, get over to get to, to, to Constantinople. So t- tell us a bit about that. That's a, it's a lovely little story. Yeah, so there's this wonderful uh, document written down by one of the uh, Byzantine emperors, and he describes this journey in quite some detail, describing all the different rapids that you have to go across uh, in the on the Dnieper River, and they have really incredible names. One of them is called "Do Not Sleep." For quite obvious reasons, you don't you want to have your your wits about you, and he explains what what people do, and it's things like. Uh, taking all the people and all the goods out of the boats, walking alongside them, some people wading in the shallows. And uh, it also explains that if you have slaves, they're, they're quite helpful because they can carry all the goods that you got with you. And amazingly, one of them is also known from a runestone in Sweden with the same name. So there's a runestone commemorating somebody who died nearby, but who traveled to one of these rapids. And it's got exactly the same name as uh, is written in this document. So these were clearly known both in Scandinavia and um, in Constantinople and across for uh, for sort of what the dangers were and how you had to traverse them. Mm. Um, it really spoke to me because I used to do a bit of white water kayaking in my youth and and uh, and going down rapids. Though even today, um, uh, people kayakers give rapids sort of silly names like. Um, you know, uh, washing machine and stuff like that, and you can kind of you could kind of see that that sense in the, in in the way it was described there. Um, so uh, so that that document is quite interesting, is uh, not only for that, but also in the sense um, it, it maybe it helps us slightly inform how the Vikings knew where they were going. How 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 do you how do you suppose travellers from Scandinavia knew which you know the, the the route to take? I suppose it's fairly obvious when you're going down a river, but but how did they know? Where they which 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 ways to go and where where they were going to end up. I think a lot of it would have come from informants, and it would have come from uh, other people who've made the journey before you. We, as far as we know, there were no maps or any other sort of navigational devices that you would have, and so it would be very much uh, that sort of learned knowledge being passed on uh, by other people. And you may well have people with you as guides, as 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 you would today, really. Um, and I think that's part of the key, is the fact that you have all this information. Information about travel, I think, in the Viking world is something that we, we tend to, to underestimate as a commodity. But actually, being able to know if you're going to the West and attacking a monastery, you need to know where to go. Same uh, in the East, if you need to know how to get through safely. There's also things like where you need to watch out for the dangerous tribes that might be living in the area that could be attacking you. Uh, you need to know all of that. So I think... 
part of what they did so well was actually being able to get hold of all of this information and take advantage of the circumstances. So as far as I can work out, much of it is is getting the inside knowledge. And what sort of um, groups of people do you imagine or do we know would have been uh, undertaking these voyages? Is it is it big fleets of ships or single boats? Do we do we have a sense about uh, about the, the, the groupings? We actually don't really know because we don't have a lot of sources. Of all of those that, that write about them, um, they don't really give that amount of detail. They seem to be, be smaller groups. Um, at the time, later on, we talk about raids on um, on places like Constantinople, and, and they're all hugely exaggerated numbers. But they're probably not the people who have come from Scandinavia in the first place. So I think we're talking about kind of medium medium-sized groups here. But I also think there's a case of people coming and joining um, in the same way that we sometimes think of this um, in the West as well and all these raids. People come and and go um, and they can join at different parts. There'll be times of year where you have to wait. Uh, In the winter, it might be too cold. The river might be frozen. And so you might wait for reinforcements before you're moving moving on. But but again, it's it's one of those things that we don't have any firm evidence from, from any of our sources at the moment. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I doubt that any of them would necessarily know or really understand that huge global connection in, in the same way that, that we try to do now. But but still, the possibility is there. You have these people who are moving really, really far distances. And who knows? Some might have gone all the way. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The scenario you're painting is basically one of a, a, a quite a connected sort of system uh, with these uh, with these groups of people travelling down uh, in a southerly and easterly direction via the river system. And you've mentioned Constantinople um, a, a couple of times as, as as one destination. What what were these people doing? They were going for trade. What what were they trading for? Um, what did they have? And what did they want? Yeah, so I think a lot of things were being traded. We have a lot of furs going across from inland territories. Some of them might have come all the way from Scandinavia, others from the other forest zones uh, throughout Russia as well. And uh, furs especially, there's a 
slave trade is a huge part of this whole story as well. We know there's a very big demand for slaves in um, in the, the Eastern world, so both in um, Constantinople, places like that, um, and also further east in the Islamic world. And we know that the Rus were a huge part uh, of that. So we know a lot of uh, Slavic people were being enslaved, taken uh, uh, and uh, traded but we know that other things were going back, things that were very desirable in addition to things like carnelian beads, of course. Uh, we have silk coming, uh, especially through places like Constantinople. And uh, another sort of very luxury items, there's a lot of luxuries, but the biggest one really, I think, is silver. And the silver trade is really what fuels an awful lot of this. There was this huge desire for silver in Scandinavia in the Viking Age. And Silver is coming in in really, really vast quantities. So whatever it is that they are getting, so all of the, the, the furs and the slaves and so on, uh, a lot of that is being exchanged for silver. And it seems obvious that nowadays that silver is a, is a precious metal and, and you, can, you can see why you want it. But what, why, why would Vikings have wanted silver? What did it do for them? Why was it a particularly um, useful resource? So it's a bit strange to to try and understand why all of a sudden it becomes so much more popular. I think part of it is because there is a really good supply. And the silver that they're getting from the East, in particular in the shape of Islamic dirhams, so these, these coins, uh, that silver is very, very pure and it comes in a really nice form. So you have this lovely flat uh, coins and the quality, as I said, is very, very high. They can be melted down really, really quickly and uh, easily. And that's part of the key to what's happening here. So the silver comes up north and then it gets melted down and it's being used as currency, as a really sort of useful currency. Because in the Viking Age, we don't really have a coin economy in exactly the same way that we think of it today. People did use coins to a degree, but um, most of the, the Scandinavian uh, countries and, and, and that were sort of chiefdoms, as it were, at the time, didn't mint their own coins. We have some minting going on, but really the economy wasn't based on coins in that same way. But silver was really, really useful for trading. So you would melt the silver down into ingots, you'd melt it into things like armbands, uh, and it was used for payments, used weighed out, cut up. Um, and we know that we see that all the way across the, the Viking world. And then a lot of it is, is turned into jewellery as well. You've got a really wonderful uh, development of uh, jewellery, especially in materials like silver at the time. So some of it is very economic and some of it has this more symbolic and artistic value. And and so these Islamic dirhams, these, these coins that you mentioned, they particularly valued them because they knew that they were of a certain quality and that when they melted them down, they were gonna they kind of knew what they were getting. They weren't interested in them as a as a as a coin economy. In that sense, they were just interested in that they could turn it into into a silver that they recognized and could use. Yes, absolutely. So they they as far as we know, they they had no value apart from their weight, you know, so the actual, not not in the sort of face value that we would think of a coin, but it was uh, the weight. But they were also minted based on a weight system. And what's so fascinating is that from about the 860s onwards, we start to see these weight systems being um, taken, these weight systems that uh, originate in the East uh, based on quantities like the dirhams start to appear in Scandinavia and they then start to appear with the great army in England as well. So you have uh, specific weights that correspond to these Islamic systems. And so, so this is all clearly interconnected uh, in a really quite fascinating way. 
And do we find many dirhams in Scandinavia or in 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 British um, Viking context, or have they all been melted down by the time they've uh, they've got to us? So actually, we do find an awful lot. Uh, not so many in England. Uh, we have some in hordes, and there are single finds as well from England. We're getting more and more through metal detecting finds. In Scandinavia, we are finding a lot, especially in Sweden, and especially on uh, the island of Gotland has huge quantities. And Gotland, I think, is an absolute key to understanding that traffic across the Baltic, uh, because it's it's located just a little offshore, uh, not too far from Birka and, and where Stockholm is, is today, and is clearly part of that route going east. So you have huge number of hordes um, with tens and tens of thousands of coins, uh, Durham coins, which have been buried in the ground and not melted down. So a lot of them were still being kept, so presumably for that silver value. But then we also know through um, some brilliant work that's going on at the moment in looking at provenancing, so chemical analysis of silver ingots, of melted down silver. And that tells us that actually a lot of the silver that we're finding in, in England, in, in ingots and these sort of melted down silver, also originated in the East and as dirhams. So... We've, we can see uh, products and materials moving in uh, in both directions. Um, we can see people moving in both directions. And so there's a lot of interesting sort of scientific work that you talk about in terms of how we can understand uh, provenance of people from isotope and genetic analysis. We're not going to go into that too much because I think we talked about that on a, on a previous podcast. Um, so we've got people and products, but what about ideas? So you mentioned that um, that concept of the of the weight system coming over with the with the Durham's, which is one thing. But one of the things that really struck me, which which I just um, I'd never thought about at all uh, before reading your book, is this idea about. Uh, the interaction of Viking peoples with Islam, and there's a there's a very interesting bit in your book where you talk about um, the possibility that there might have been Muslim missionaries in this uh, in this settlement at Burqa. Um, what's is there is there a scenario, any scenario in which uh, the Viking peoples might have been converted to Islam rather than Christianity? Was that even a possibility, for instance? I would say it's definitely a possibility. Uh, I would say we absolutely have no proof of that at all. But then again, determining religion in the past is one of the, the most difficult things, really. We tend to really be able to do it only if you have very specific symbols. So if somebody is buried with a cross or a Thor's hammer, we could get a good idea. Uh, and that is assuming that that symbol is actually a reflection of their um, of, of their religion. We do have objects with Islamic inscriptions. There are, I talk about that in the book as well. There's, there's things like a, a ring, for example, in Birka, um, which has what is probably an Arabic or Islamic inscription that's buried with somebody. Um, but yeah, so, somebody wondered whether there could actually be communities of people who, who were Muslims uh, in Scandinavia as well. We really don't know. But one other interesting thing is that the dirhams, a lot of the dirhams that we find actually have graffiti on them. So they have scratches, sometimes completely intelligible, sometimes uh, possibly uh, letters. But there are some with crosses that may well be religious uh, sort of Christian crosses on them, uh, some also with possible Thor's hammers. So the question is, Do are we talking about people who actually know and understand that the inscription on the Islamic coins are actually religious because they, they have um, you know, religious meanings and messages on them? Perhaps people did know that that's what, what they meant and what those inscriptions were. So that, that gives a sort of sense that perhaps there was an understanding. And as we have these people mixing so many places along the East, we know we have 
some Muslim uh, travelers coming north. There's one, uh, for example, uh, in I think the 10th century in Hedeby. Uh, we know we've got another Arabic traveler, traveler uh, reaching Hedeby and uh, describing the people he meets there. So, so we know they they also went that way. So, I think it's an interesting question. I think it's one we definitely can't prove, but I think we should be open to to those ideas uh, of the religions actually moving moving around in Viking contexts. And another idea that that maybe sits there is you, you sort of talk in your book about the sense of the Viking interest in exotica, and I suppose Eastern exotica. Is that is that something that you you sort of see quite clearly through your um, for your research into into this period? Absolutely. So we see all these objects that are clearly exotic objects, and they know they're exotic. And it's not just because they're beautiful. I mean, obviously, yes, iconolium bead is very pretty. It's it's orange, but you get glass beads that are equally pretty. So the materials themselves are. They are hard to get. People would have known that they've travelled a long way. Things like the silks, obviously, very high quality, but there's also this connotation that they are moving from somewhere else. They're from an other. And we see the dirhams being used as jewellery as well. So a lot of the, the dirhams are actually being pierced and they're being worn as necklaces. Some of them extremely uh, wealthy necklaces have um, have several dirhams, uh, several exotic beads. So you've got rock crystal and carnelian, for example. And so people are using them for display and they're, they're, they're saying something. And some of it might just be, well, I could afford this really expensive stuff. But another interpretation is that they are some kind of uh, way of showing a connection to these territories. Perhaps some of these are people who've moved uh, and actually been abroad, as it were, been been somewhere else. And I think we can think of that in ways that we, we do today. When we've traveled, you might uh, be wearing sort of something that you've bought abroad, something that sort of really represents those places you've been to if you come from holiday or something like that. Um, and I think that there's sort of, we need to think of those exotic objects also as actually linking people with places, um, either real physical places they have been, or perhaps they have some other connection. In Birka, we see an awful lot of grave goods from many of these exotic places. We see uh, people being buried with forms of dress that clearly have come from other territories. And so perhaps that is uh, people showing their their origins, their, their sort of uh, where they've come from, or, or perhaps they just want that link. And same in, in the East, in some of these cemeteries, there's places like Shostovitsa, which I talk about, which is one of the sites uh, in the Ukraine. We have uh, a number of burials with very distinctive Scandinavian grave goods. And again, they are probably expressing something which which then is, is almost exotic in another way, in the opposite direction. Uh, and they might be be expressing that link uh, to, to the other territories. Right. To, um, like that's really a bit no, no. No, that's no, that's uh, that's that's absolutely spot on. So I'm just um, just trying to um, bring this to a, to a bit of a wrap up. So we talked about the kind of the carnelian bee to start with, and I said that it probably came from somewhere in India. Uh, our Viking adventurers have kind of they've got to Constantinople so far in our conversation, and not much further. So um, is there any evidence for for um, Scandinavian peoples actually going to India, or could we assume that? things like Carnelian bees would be um, traded into uh, the, the big trading entrepot, which was um, Constantinople, the, Constantinople, the centre of the Byzantine Empire. So we do have um, some evidence or some sources that talk about the Rus, so whether or not they are Vikings, Scandinavians, we'll, we'll leave that now, but uh, travelling to Baghdad, so they could go overland from the Caspian Sea. There were a number of raids around the Caspian Sea, so you can get to the Caspian either from the Black Sea or down from the Volga River. There's a couple of routes you can go. We know that they raided a number of cities there, and there's 
descriptions of them going overland by camel caravan to Baghdad. And from Baghdad, it's really quite easy to get across to the Indian Ocean and those trade networks. So it's not impossible that some might have gone to India, but I think it's much more likely that those goods came in that way and then were transported through all of these uh, networks. So the idea, although I would love for somebody to have gone all the way from Repton to India or, or India to Repton, and, <laughs> Repton and, and back, I think it's more likely that these are step-by-step processes. These are all parts, uh, networks that, that they are part of. And I think the B to me really symbolizes that really, really well. The fact that you can get all the way from somewhere like that to Repton probably relatively quickly. Um, these are kind of stepping stones on that journey. And um, I think what the Vikings or the Rus or, or whoever, whatever you want to call them, do so well is that they tap into something, they tap into this web, this sort of global connections going all the way from east to west. And they do that extremely successfully. And that's what really fascinates me. And I think that's one of the keys to understanding the Viking Age at all is how they so successfully managed to create these global networks or, or tap into already existing networks with remarkable success. So so that um, when I set up this conversation to start with, I said we've kind of got we see the Vikings in the West and we see the Vikings in the East and, and they don't they're not connected for us. Is that whole West East thing uh, a completely false division then created simply by our, our current academic understanding? Is it just one big network that Scandinavian people tapped into? To one, yeah, in one way, I think uh, you can say that it is. I think there are obviously different parts of it. So there are, uh, there's an emphasis from Norway, especially in Denmark, on the West, so on England and Ireland and so on. And a lot of the emphasis from Sweden is going East. But actually, when you start to see dirhams popping up at a site like Torxi, for example, which is where uh, the Vikings or the Great Army was in 872, you got... Uh, You've got Durham's there that date to the 860s, late 860s. So they've actually moved really far across the world from the Middle East to Torxi, to that great army that we think of as very much as coming from possibly Denmark or Norway uh, and really raiding, not being involved in that eastern parts. But when you get those objects, when you get the Carnelian bid, when you get the Durham's and you get these weights that they use, which are part of that same system, uh, you understand that actually it is part of something bigger. So even though the smallest refractions are, are more focused on the West, actually they are tapping into the same thing. I doubt that any of them would necessarily know or really understand that huge global connection in, in the same way that, that we try to do now. But, but still... The possibility is there. You have these people who are moving really, really far distances and who knows, some might have gone all the way. That was Kat Jarman. Her book, River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Road, is published now by William Collins. Kat has also written a feature on what modern science can tell us about Viking society for the March issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the Western Front, the medieval queens of Jerusalem and the Tudor origin story. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Cathy Newman will be speaking about history's most influential partnerships. (laughs) 